The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code THEGIST. It's Tuesday, November 11th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, you know I don't like to lay all my problems on you. Transportation issues. Who wants to hear someone else's problems, right? Can't find someone to neuter my ferret. Not a euphemism. But today, the show might sound a little weird today, right? This microphone. I could not venture far from my home. I could not get to the studio. I got a hold of some bad Belgian food last night. Some bad Belgian. King Leopold II's Revenge. Right? See where I'm going with that? Just a bad, disagreeable Belgian. Muscles, specifically. I guess the ones that affect peristalsis, if you know what I'm saying. But enough about my tracts. Okay, okay. I could bruise at any moment. All right, I got to stop this. That's not right. I am feeling a little bit Flemish, though. Nope, there would be no more, no more concentration on what's going on, though I was laid low by a low country. No, no. I will talk about this. Pronunciation. I'm bad at it. Did you know that? Yesterday, I let loose with a bunch of Italian names. Massimo Massimi. I was widely hailed for nailing them all. No, I got a bunch of them wrong. I'm not great with pronunciation. I think I said Cote d'Avore, and it apparently the Ivory Coast, when translated into French, it takes more than just putting on a ridiculous French accent to say Cote d'Avore. Okay, I can't do it. Cote d'Avoir. Maybe d'Avoir. I can't pronounce a whole lot of words. Chimera. Chimera. Camura. And the weird thing is, I'm trying to say the word drawer there. So anyway, there on the front page of the New York Times, I'm reading about this Romanian hacker named Guccifer, or maybe Guccifer, or maybe Guccifer. And so then the New York Times provides this pronunciation guide, but it's the worst thing ever. They go with G-U-C-C-I in all caps, and then the F-E-R part in lowercase. I did not think that the second syllable was the problem. I did not think that it was Gucci fur or Goose fur or Goose fur, right? I don't know if it's Gucci or Gucci or Gucci. So then you read how he got the name. It was a cross between Gucci. Oh, so it's Gucci fur and Lucifer. Oh, so it's Guccifer provides no such guidance. So today we'll be talking about a subject that's maybe hard to pronounce too, Iran or maybe Iran. I know it's not Iran. That's a flock of seagulls song. And in the spiel, math, I'm going to lay some math on you. But first, the New York doctor who was diagnosed with Ebola has left the hospital. But let's look back at U.S. politicians' policies and how that's affecting the fight in Africa. So today was announced that Dr. Craig Spencer is leaving the hospital, leaving Bellevue. He is Ebola-free. The statistics in the United States on people who've been afflicted with Ebola, nine people, most of them health workers, and one fatality, and that was Thomas Duncan, the Liberian who was treated a bit too late in Dallas. This is an amazing cure rate, especially when compared with the rest of the world where Ebola claims victims at a rate of 50 to 70%. But this does not mean... A, that things are getting much better in West Africa, and it doesn't mean that there weren't serious American missteps. Joining me now is Margaret Aguirre, head of global initiatives with the International Medical Corps. These are one of two sets of doctors and professionals, along with Doctors Without Borders, who are in West Africa treating Ebola patients. Thank you for joining us, Margaret. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
give me a sense of the scope of your agency. How many people are there? How many patients have they treated or does each doctor, does each medical professional tasked with? So International Medical Corps has approximately 350 health personnel in West Africa currently. We have approximately 35, around 35 Americans. The rest are local librarians and locals from Sierra Leone. We have uh, opened Ebola treatment units. Uh, One is open in Liberia and another is uh, just about to open in Sierra Leone. And then we're constructing uh, others in both countries. And then we will be launching a training facility. We're already training both local and international health workers to be able to treat Ebola patients. Are you fully staffed or are you looking for more people to volunteer? No, we're definitely looking for more. We're scaling up uh, as fast as we can and, you know, heavily recruiting um, in this country and many others to be able to send people over. When Dr. Uh, Spencer was put in the hospital and then when Casey Hickox, the nurse, was quarantined, it was said that this would have a chilling effect on people volunteering. There was a logic to it. It didn't take too big a leap of faith to think that people who are willing to put their lives on the line and lives on hold upon coming back didn't also want to give up three weeks of, you know, not working or not being able to. Well, this was the claim, at least. What was the reality? Did it really have a chilling effect on volunteers? Oh, the reality is absolutely. It has hindered our efforts to be able to recruit people, and I know it's the same for other organizations. You know, International Medical Corps has networks of thousands of people that we can go to in a disaster. But, you know, after, say, the Haiti earthquake or the Philippines typhoon, we had thousands of people step forward wanting to help. After the Ebola became known, and it already was a response that was difficult to recruit for because of the fears, but also the time commitment is enormous. It's literally double of other deployments because you have extensive training that has to go on even before people deploy. We have a 10-day mandatory training so people can understand and learn how to wear the protective suits to be able to go into the Ebola treatment unit to work with the patients. And so the deployments we require are six to eight weeks much longer. And then upon their return, if they're facing a quarantine or a self-isolation period where they can't return to work, it's just prohibitive for them. They, they can't be away for that long. So if we had a graph of the number of volunteers pre-quarantine and the number after, and granted, in the beginning of any, any um, event like this, you're going to get maybe a deluge in the beginning, but what did the drop-off look like? Well, I would say that there was never a deluge in the beginning, again, because of the nature of this. Um, it's a, it's a slow moving disaster instead of a, an acute immediate one. But I will say that the, the pool, you know, the number of people who backed out or modified their plans was around, you know, 25, 30% of the people we were interviewing the minute the travel restrictions became an issue. We had people who said, I will go and then canceled or said, I just can't do it anymore. So we had plenty of that. Now the pool is just much smaller because the word is out. People know what the restrictions are going to be, and they are kind of self-canceling. You know, we're, we're getting a smaller pool coming forward in the first place. You know, this is a blunt question, and I'm not sure you can answer it, but I think it's a fair question. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone can answer it. These quarantines that are not endorsed by the medical community, is there any way of knowing how many Africans they will kill? 
that would be impossible for me to answer. The, the fact is that, you know, this is an outbreak that is very serious and has to be stopped at its source. Uh, focusing on, you know, I like to say that if, you know, if you have a fire outside your apartment and the only way that you fight it is by putting towels under your door, that's not going to stop it. You have to fight the fire at the source. We need to focus on putting out that fire at its source. And if we just wall ourselves off, that won't work because, you know, in this global world of ours where diseases can travel easily, people will work their ways around travel restrictions. If they have to lie, they will, you know, and if they have to evade, they will. Okay, here's a more answerable question. I totally understand why it's impossible to answer the last one. I do think no, I do think even rhetorically it's something to think about. The question is this. If people were to say, oh, I don't doubt you that it's an inconvenience and stop there, would they be wrong? In other words, is there a doubt in your mind that these uh, travel restrictions actually, we don't know how many, but actually cost lives? Well, yes, because it's not just health professionals that are being affected. When there are travel restrictions, that means supplies can't get in. That means life-saving supplies can't get in. It means food can't get in. We're already seeing the collapse of the health infrastructure in these countries because they don't have the kinds of uh, basics that they need because so many flights have been canceled. Uh, airlines have said we're not going to travel there anymore. It's already happening. So the outbreak is far worse than it might have been. And we're continuing to be slower in responding than we need to be. For as much as there are logistical hurdles to overcome, medical hurdles to overcome, I mean, this is such a big lift. Is it extra depressing that a hurdle came from your own government, from the U.S. government? <laughs> well, um, it's frustrating when a lot of what you're dealing with is the court of public opinion. You know, people are really afraid, and we understand those fears. We have those fears as well. I mean, our returning health workers want to be safe, and they want their, their health workers, their whole lives are protecting others. The last thing they're going to do is put others at risk. So these are people who know what their own situation is for the most part, I mean, we do extensive screenings of our people before they ever even leave. They're monitored the whole time that they're working. So we don't allow them to leave until we feel very safe that they're not just low risk, they're no risk. Margaret Aguirre is head of Global Initiatives for the International Medical Corps. And I will disclose something. I have not done this with anyone else I've interviewed, but I'm giving 50 bucks to your organization when I hang out. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. We, uh, we need every bit that we can get. So thank you very much. Absolutely. I am putting all future just guests on notice. This offer does not apply to you, but you get it, Margaret. Thank you. Did you know that the month of November is upon us? Are you growing out an epic handlebar mustache? Now, you might be saying, because this is an ad for Harry's, Harry's Razor, which is the official razor partner of Movember. But you might be saying, wait a minute, why would a razor partner with hair, facial hair? Aren't they enemies? Aren't they natural enemies? And let me make an analogy. Let's say instead of the gist, you were listening to The Sculpt, a podcast about sculpting. And I was advertising a German-manufactured, exquisitely crafted, really good bargain chisel. 
and I was talking about some clay. Would you say, what would a chisel want to do with clay? Chisels hate clay. Clay is the natural enemy of the chisel. No, no, that's not the case. Just like with facial hair and a razor, chisels don't hate clay. Chisels want to work with excess clay to take it away, to let the best clay shine through. Sometimes we call that David, the sculpture by Michelangelo. And sometimes we call that your crazy handlebar mustache. I use Harry's razor. It's really more than a razor. In fact, the deal we're offering includes three razor blades, a handle, and a choice of foaming shave gel and the shave cream for 15 bucks. Here's the details on that deal. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off that starter shave set that I just mentioned, but you have to type in the code, the gist with your first purchase. That's H A R R Y S.com and enter the coupon code, the gist at checkout for $5 off and change the way you shave forever. November 24th is a deadline for Iran when talks with the West over nuclear weapons might expire. Just today, Russia confirmed sale of two nuclear reactors to Iran. A few days ago, it was revealed that President Obama has been communicating via letter to Iran's supreme leader, the same Ayatollah who called for Israel to be annihilated. The other branches of the U.S. government, other than the executive, might not be as pleased with a deal with Iran. This is to say, if there is to be a U.S. deal with Iran. Joining me now is Robin Wright. She is a Middle East analyst, a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson Center. Thank you for joining us, Robin. Great to be with you. So we see that uh, President Obama has been communicating with Ayatollah Khamenei. This has been criticized by liberals and Republicans, but yet it does seem to me that if you are going to forge a diplomatic solution, you need some communication, don't you? Well, the nuclear talks are arguably the most important nonproliferation initiative in maybe six presidencies. It also could end up as President Obama's foreign policy legacy. It is particularly important in preventing... Uh, the growth of nuclear weapons, not just in Iran, but throughout the entire Middle East. And so there are a lot of very controversial arguments and measures going on at the moment in the run-up to November 24th, this critical deadline. For 35 years, the United States and Iran have had almost no contact, the odd exception of the arms for hostage swap in the mid-1980s, some tentative a communication by President Bush and President Ahmadinejad. But at the moment, the outreach is an attempt not only to deal with the nuclear question, but the fact that the Middle East is facing, in many ways, its biggest crisis with the growth of ISIS. And this is an issue in which the United States and Iran actually share common purpose. And that was one of the issues mentioned in this letter from President Obama to Supreme Letter Leader Khamenei. Now, that the audience was Khamenei, how significant is that? Because there are so many constituencies that President Obama has to appeal to. There's a lot of high drama around this initiative, and it's also been deeply politicized between Democrats and Republicans. It's going to be even more controversial, probably, to get an agreement in either Washington or Tehran among their different congressional or parliamentary factions than it is to get a deal between Tehran and Washington. This is only the beginning of what is likely to be a, an even bumpier process down the road. But it is interesting that President Obama has written the Supreme Leader 
in part because it's also a signal that the United States is not secretly engaging in regime change. It, it acknowledges that the current government in Iran is there to stay, and that's not the U.S. intent. President Obama is not the first one to have said that. President Bush said that as well. But it is, in some ways, an attempt to reach out and, and communicate, and that's really what diplomacy is all about at the end of the day. How badly are U.S. sanctions hurting Iran, and how much will that come into play in these negotiations? Well, I've been in Iran twice since last December and looked at that question. I think that it's interesting that Iran's economic problems are probably even due more to its own mismanagement during former President Ahmadinejad, more than half of all Iran's oil revenues since oil was discovered were earned during President Ahmadinejad's rule because of the high prices. His government basically blew through a lot of it for, for a lot of different reasons, including corruption, mismanagement, and so forth. Then you add the compound of sanctions, and that those two factors intersect, and Iran is under enormous strain. And, of course, the price of oil is going down now, and that will add to the incentives. But at the end of the day, the price of oil is not likely to be the determinant for Iran's ultimate decision about whether to go along with the major world's major powers. So you've been studying this a long time. You frame it as perhaps one of the, if it gets done, most important foreign policy breakthroughs in six presidencies. The president has talked about bypassing the Senate. That, of course, has political consequences. You know, he'd have to spend down on whatever um, goodwill he has. He might get criticized for that. If there is a deal, do you think that the president should do whatever he can, including bypassing the Senate, to get this deal done? Well, I think there's a little bit of muddling of the issue here. Uh, the quid pro quo for Iran complying with United Nations resolutions and agreeing with the world's six major powers is some form of sanction relief on sanctions imposed because of its nuclear program, not sanctions imposed because of its support of terrorist groups uh, or its human rights abuses, but one select section of sanctions. There are two ways the United States can lift its sanctions. One is by executive order. The other is by going through Congress. The administration has acknowledged that at some point Congress will have to weigh in. But both the Iranians and the Obama administration have said that they may, in some initial stage, engage in a what would be a waiver, a present waiver, through executive order, offering sanctions relief partial sanctions relief. And I suspect any deal will be in phases. This is not going to be a process that, if we get a deal, is a, a light switch that turns the process on and off. This will be a, something that plays out in phases, potentially for a decade or longer, and that with each step that's taken, there will be other uh, reciprocal actions by the world's six major powers. It's going to be controversial and political no matter what the deal says. Yesterday on my show, I quoted uh, Jeffrey Goldberg as saying the United States wants this deal more, but Iran needs this deal more. Is that a useful way to look at it, that this is really in, if you look at the sanctions, if you look at where they stand in the international community, something that is in Iran's best interest? It's just a question of getting them to realize this? This is the first time in 35 years that we have been on the same page 
with the Iranians, and that's an important step. Both sides do want a deal. I think both sides actually need a deal. We don't want to see the proliferation of nuclear weapons throughout the Middle East and beyond. We want to restrain the number of countries that have the weapon uh, in the world today. So it's not just whether Iran has a program or not. There's a lot more at stake in terms of the 21st century and who has the world's deadliest weapon. Robin Wright is an author and an expert. Among her books is Dreams and Shadows, The Future of the Middle East. So thanks for talking about that with us today, Robin. Thank you. And now the spiel, checking the math. Today in Pakistan, it was I Am Not Malala Day. Malala Yousafzai, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, the girl killed, almost killed, for the crime of wanting to go to school. She's being protested by the All-Pakistan Private School Federation, which claims to represent almost 200,000 schools because Malala is supposedly anti-Islam. The evidence they cite is, well, to use a word that they used in their press conference, rubbish. But really, isn't it just a good move to look at Malala, see what the world thinks of her, and get on the opposite side of that issue? Great wedge issue, Pakistan Private School Federation. And the other thing that I was thinking about is math. So I investigated the Pakistan Private School Federation. Terrible website, a lot of broken links, a lot of dummy text, couple pictures. They're all men on a dais. They're all boys in a classroom. But I did come across this claim. We run private schools in which more than 50% enrollment is of girls and an equal percentage of teachers are also female. So I would just like to point out the math on this. If you have 100,000 schools, some of you participating in I Am Not Malala Day will in fact be Malala. You will be named Malala's. I'm going to put it at 27. There are at least 27 Malala's. It is almost statistically impossible not for there to be at least 27 Malala's participating in I Am Not Malala Day. And given the whimsical nature of the group, I suppose they will come in for some gentle ribbing. But now onto the real math. And this is judges who are hearing gay rights cases on the Ninth Circuit and a coalition called the Coalition for the Protection of Marriage objected. They said it was unfair. They said that It's not random which judges got to hear cases that affected gay rights. They alleged that two certain judges who were the most pro-gay wound up on a greater proportion of the 11 cases they say were about gay rights than would have happened given random chance. So I checked their math. Okay, here's how it works. There are 29 judges on a panel. So any one judge to get picked, since there are three judges on a panel, you got about a 10% chance. The simple way of figuring this out is three out of about 30. That's about 10%. There's a more complex way of figuring it out, which uh, I calculated pretty much precisely as you have a 9.9921% chance. How about we call this a 10% chance? Now, given that any one judge has a 10% chance of being on one case, what are the odds if there were 11 cases about gay rights, what are the odds that a judge is on five times, five of those cases? It's so astronomically low. Well, I don't know if astronomically low, but it's very, very low. It's about a quarter of 1% that if you're on five or more. And then there was another judge who they said was pro-gay, and she was on 1.8% of cases. And the weird thing is, because they alleged, this group alleged, that randomly there would only be a 441 to 1 chance 
that these two pro-gay judges, as they defined it, would randomly be on the panels. I found it to be lower than that. I don't know why they were going with 441. I checked their math. They had a bizarro way of doing it. And as I was getting lost in the weeds, you know what I decided to do? I decided to go back and read the whole story where I saw this in the New York Times. And it turns out all my math, all their math, is just for bunk. They have a different way of choosing judges that isn't exactly random. They factor seniority. Another factor is that this group cherry-picked which 11 cases they called the, the gay rights cases. And these two judges, who are so predisposed to find four gay plaintiffs in gay rights cases, didn't a whole bunch of times. So it was a weird example of me checking the math and then the math saying, Mike, check yourself. What's really going on here? Some number manipulation. Now, here's another bit of math number manipulation. There is a company called Just Mayo, builds itself as the Eggless Mayo, in court, they're having to fight for that name and fight for that title against Hellman's. And so within the, hey, let's eat good stuff without egg community, I think there's probably a quicker way of saying that. But anyway, within this community, it's like big bad Hellman's is coming in. Hellman's has, I think, though, more of a clear point, which is this. The definition of mayo, the FDA definition of mayo is a food that contains vegetable oils and egg yolks. So calling something the Eggless mayo is like calling something the flightless airplane. One of the basic tenets of mayo is that it has eggs. So what does just mayo say? Oh, yeah. That's why we say we're not just mayonnaise. We're just mayo. Mayo has nothing to do with mayonnaise. In fact, the word anaise, that means egg in some language. Actually, they don't say that. But I think the silver lining, the creamy white silver lining of the just mayo case is this. Unlike an anti-human rights campaign in the most benighted sectors of the Muslim world, and unlike anti-gay rights activists who will use math to get their way, I think with the phenomenon of just mayo, we can stop the spread. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi got a hold of some bad tie we call the distress. She's going through the 2002 Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, ate a bad meal from the Ivory Coast. And now he has the Cote d'Ivoire Trots du Jour. As executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers ate by the side of Africa's fourth largest river and came down with a case of the Zambezi Queasy. You can subscribe in iTunes or give us a listen on Stitcher. Our daily email is slate.com slash gist email. That's where you sign up for it. We're also on Yo. Go download that app and sign up for the podcast thing. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. And today is Veterans Day. So honor our veterans, follow their progress, keep up with their civilian lives, and let my day stand as warning against taking for granted that which is on the GI track. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Steve Metcalf. I'm the host of the Slate Culture Gap Fest. This week, we talk about the new Christopher Nolan blockbuster, Interstellar. The movie is quite the big think spectacle. Come uh, join us and listen in on our conversation. You can search for our show on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts.